Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. If we have a narrative that's a negative view of children and that's what we're responding to, we end up winding ourselves up because we're not even seeing things clearly. We're simply seeing them through our mindset. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 260. Today, we're talking about how to resolve family conflicts with Catherine Winter Celery. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast, now with over a million downloads. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you've calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Hello, and welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. I am so glad you are here. Welcome, welcome. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with an awesome guest, Catherine Winter Celery. She's a TEDx speaker, founder of the Conscious Parenting Revolution, and she is a mentor to thousands of parents around the world. We're actually going to have some conversations about how the way we parent our children actually relates to the criminal justice system. What do you think about that, Sora? Any thoughts on that? My daughter, Sora, is here. Well, well, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) According to Catherine Winter Celery, it actually relates a lot. And in this episode, we talk about family conflict and the essential mindset changes we need to move to a more cooperative, compassionate model. And there's some important takeaways I want you to listen for, how we can't change others, but we can create the conditions for change to happen. How when we find ourselves needing to prove It's actually proof of doubt. Pretty interesting, right? And how we can often have these compassionate goals, but we use unskillful authoritarian means. This is a great conversation, and you'll see that Catherine's point of views really coincide with mine in a huge way, and we could have talked for hours. I think you're going to get so, so much out of this conversation. I think that's all I have to say about it. We've been doing some fun Facebook Live events around here. I've been talking about how to handle 24-7 parenting burnout 
and why your kids don't listen to you in some quick Facebook Live sessions. And so if you want to learn about these as they come up, make sure you go to Mindful Mama Mentor and get on the mailing list so that you can be part of these sessions and ask your questions in real time. Okay, I think this is enough intro. Let's dive right in to this conversation with Catherine Wintercelery. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to have you here too. And and I think you and I are in alignment in a lot of different ways that things that we teach. And I'm I'm so excited about that. But I one of the things you really make really clear, and I think um and I'd love to dive into this first, is the way that we have as a culture a negative view of children. And I don't think like the average person really realizes, mm-hmm. and this is something I'm pretty aware of, but you make it really clear. And, and I don't think we realize how we do this, how we kind of unconsciously think of children in a negative way. So I was wondering if you could kind of just start us off talking about sure. that. And, 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 and you make a great analogy, actually like comparing it in one of your TED Talks to racism and ageism too. Yeah. Yeah, that is actually um, one of the ways that I demonstrate this ageism that we have within our perspective. You know, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing that you probably talk in your courses about the story that we tell ourselves about behavior. Mm -hmm. And so as parents, when we're looking at so-called quote-unquote bad behaviors, it really is about the filter and consciousness and how we're explaining what we see and the behaviors that we see. So the language that we use, things like they're attention seeking, they're misbehaving, they're out to get me, they've got to learn. If you don't come down hard, it's going to just keep on happening. These are the narratives that we have when we're looking at the so-called bad behaviors. And I say so-called, not because the behavior isn't possibly socially unacceptable or disturbing or something that we want to see the other person stop doing. I would say that those are more than likely all the ways that we would describe the behaviors that we're seeing, but the explanations that we have for them are something other than what we would have had if it had been our mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, uncle, person down the road, having made the same behavioral presentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we begin to realize that the way we talk about or explain to ourselves the behavior when it's a child, we can expose the fact that actually embedded in our own description of what we see is a negative view of children. And if we substitute race and an older person age-wise, we would explain it differently to ourselves. And it helps us see that, oh, wow, there is something about the fact that it's a child doing it that without even realizing it, I have a sense of they could have done better and they're choosing not to because they're out to get me. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's this like battle, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Like in, in some of the examples are, I think really make that clear. Like, um, like they're trying to manipulate me, right? Like I hear that, you know, fairly often and it, you know, and we don't say that about like, say, I don't know, you know, if we, you know, yeah, exactly. Like that Italian down right. the street Greece. trying to manipulate, manipulate me or whatever, yeah. right? But like, if we were to do it, we would notice that, oh gosh, you know, we would stop ourselves mm-hmm. because it's blatant racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But when we think yeah, about if we it, said, if we said, Greeks are manipulative. Black people are trying to manipulate me. Like there, yes, it's re- very clear, right? Recognize, oh, oh my goodness, racist. I need to, yeah, yeah, I need to think about the way I'm thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I need to unpack this. What happens when we say a race is that if we're self-aware, we recognize instantly that there's prejudice, mm-hmm. but we don't think about the prejudice we have against children because it's so deeply embedded in consciousness. And it's so often the way that people are explaining behavior rather than recognizing that behavior is the manifestation of whether someone's needs are met or not met. So when we look at people that are moving through life in very easy, graceful, lighthearted ways, you could say about that person that their needs are being met Mm -hmm. and that that's a reflection of the fact that their needs are met. But if you see someone who's very upset 
you could simply explain it as, wow, that person's struggling to meet their needs. Mm -hmm. They're dysregulated. Mm -hmm. They're not in balance. They could use some support. I could throw them a lifeline. But we stop ourselves when we get judgment in the midst of the way we look at the behavior. Good, bad, right, wrong. Those stop us, our judgments. So observation without evaluation is the highest form of human intelligence. Krishnamurti said that. And when we reflect on what Krishnamurti said, observation without evaluation, we recognize that we spend our lives in evaluation to observe the behavior without then sliming it with my perspective of the behavior takes a lot of effort. It does. Now the, the thing it's, I think that it's, it's hard to bring up, I think this idea that, that judgment is problematic, like that our, our judgment is problematic because we, I mean, this, you know, and if we kind of look at like, where does this come from? Like, where do these ideas come from? Like we're steeped in a very judgmental culture, right? Like we're, you know, in large part, this is a Judeo-Christian country, right? Where it's like, you're judged on whether you're good or bad, going to heaven or hell, right? Or we're, we're judged in our, our justice system, we're judged at school, the ABCD letter system. So to even, to just like question judgment at all is, is a really uh, a really difficult, I think, shift to make to say that wait a minute, I'm I'm not supposed to judge, I'm not supposed to evaluate my children. What's going on there? How do you how do you help people to start to understand um, looking at judgment in this new way? I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. Yeah. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about retributive versus restorative justice. Mm. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who are already 
on the path of restorative justice and the understanding that it's through restorative justice that transformation occurs. That Can you, um, sorry, define those for the listener yeah. who hasn't heard the words retributive or restorative justice? Yeah, yeah, sure. So retributive justice is based on punishment for past misdeeds. And so the focus of our, um, our own prison system is retributive justice. We're looking to punish people for something that they did that was wrong. And that is the foundation of our, our system and lots of other people's systems, not just ours. And restorative justice, which is, you know, Marshall Rosenberg, the founder for the Center for Nonviolent Communication, is the father of restorative justice in America. And restorative justice is about giving people the skills to be able to move forward and respond when they're in similar situations going forward to respond differently. Yeah. So that there is a way for that person to actually behave in ways that are less harmful to others and to themselves. So it's a skills-based approach. And it both acknowledge that we have a problem and both acknowledge that there's something that needs to happen differently. Mm -hmm. But one takes an approach that if you make someone pay for their crime, that that will create transformation. And the other one says, until you learn a new way, you can be putting others and yourself at risk. And so we need to possibly continue to have people in captivity, if you will. But the, the purpose of being in captivity isn't to um, make them pay for their past misdeed as much as it is we need to keep you away from doing harm to self and others until you have new skill sets. I love this. I love that we're taking it right there to like comparing parenting to the criminal justice system. Yeah. Because it makes so much sense because it really is true that what's in the micro in our families is what's in the macro. And you talk about that in your, your TED talk about how our authoritarian discipline is fueling violence mm -hmm. and mental health. And I believe that and know that to be true, but it's really hard to like, I think, wrap our heads around this. And, and we, I guess if we look at it kind of in the prison system, we can say, okay, I mean, most of us now know that the prison system is not working. It makes, brings, brings out people who are just more likely to do more crime. It, it, it doesn't reform them. Like this is not reformatories the way that doesn't really work. We'd need to teach people skills, right? And it's the same thing with our children. Like they're meeting a need and we need to teach them skills. I love, I love that, you know, the, that we take that there right there because it's hard to, it's hard to wrap our heads around how this like judgment of you and your behavior as bad is harmful. So maybe you can like, let's take a step back and kind of walk through that. Sure. So, I mean, you know, when we recognize, here's the fundamentals. The fundamentals, Dr. Thomas Gordon, who your reader or your listeners may or may not be familiar with, he, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times based on the following. Discovery that when you use a controlling form of discipline, you activate retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. The three R's. So if you use that modality, then you are generating retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. And then Dr. Louise Porter in her book, Children Are People Too, talks about 75% of our time we're dealing with disruptions that originated from my controlling form of discipline. So I just want to so, underline this for the listener right here, because yeah. what Catherine just said is that our controlling form of discipline, it leads to, and it's been shown by research to lead to retaliation, rebellion, and resentment. So dear listener, I just want you to just think about that for a minute. Like when was the last time you used a timeout or you used a threat or you used a punishment with your child? And then did that controlling form of discipline, did it lead to retaliation, rebellion, or resentment? And just at, take a moment to ask yourself that because what you're probably going to find out is that it really did. Yeah. So when, when you have activated the three R's, 
and then you find most of your time, three out of four of your subsequent disruptions resulted from that initial way of dealing with something. So the primary problems get lost. The primary issues that we're trying to actually attend to have, have we've become so far away, we're dealing in the secondary issues. I had a client the other day talk to me about his daughter and his problem with her and that you know they had gone out for this outing in the evening they were with the other child going to go lie underneath the stars and have this great little wonderful camp out and it was all ruined because she was walking 25 feet behind them and had a grudge and had this attitude and all this kind of stuff and i was listening to the story and i was thinking to myself huh that sounds a lot like a resentment flow <laughs> I said, gee, you know, I wonder what's going on for her. If, if you look at all behaviors as the breadcrumbs, the behavior themselves is a breadcrumb. It's information. It's not good behavior. It's not bad behavior. Behavior is information about what's going on within someone. And we can begin to look at the behaviors as the reflection of an inner world. So I just kind of said, gee, you know, seems to me that this this might be one of the R's. Was there something that preceded this? And he said, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I was really mad when she didn't practice her piano. Oh, I see, well, what happened? Yeah, I screamed at her and I, I was, you know, I mean, I, I overreacted, and, but then I apologized. So as if that's supposed to clear the air. And what I think we know is that when we lose it and we become abusive, that our demand that children therefore just get over it and um, that we not experience what we've created by the way that we responded to something that we were upset about is impractical. That there needs to be a healing process, but primarily what needs to happen is that the support that's needed for, the, in this case, the dad, when he gets triggered to be able to deal within himself with what's going on internally so that he doesn't then dump it as a toxic waste dump all over his child and then wonder why she's standing 25 feet behind him as they go out for this so-called wonderful time together. Well, it's not going to be wonderful if that's the way that this person responds to problems, disruptive problems when a child doesn't do what they're supposed to do. So, I mean, that's the focus of the work that I do is giving parents the skills that they need to be able to support themselves when they're triggered yes. by something that's happening outside of themselves that they are trying to control when in fact they themselves are completely out of control. Yes, yes, that whole piece about <laughs> lowering our reactivity, understanding why this thing is, you know, causing such a big feeling for us, all of that work all has to happen before we even start to understand, like, what are the right words to say? You know, we have to totally do that, that inner work of, of understanding ourselves um, and, and to, to say, well, then let, let me just take a step back, like, what how that father, he, he understood that he had made, created this rupture, right, with his behavior. And he tried to make a repair. And how, how could he have, how he, could he have healed that situation a little bit better in, from your point of view? Yeah, well, I think that children are so beautiful, because they are actually the ones that reflect back to us whether or not they experience us as authentic. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, they have incredible BS meters. <laughs> yeah, they've got, they're pretty, pretty amazing. If you need a really good BS meter, find a child who has not been conditioned to lie to you. Mm -hmm. So if you can find a child who has not been conditioned to lie to you, then you may be blessed with the truth. And so, you know, that may land differently for the listeners. In any event, we as parents tend to want our children to lie to us and tell us what we want to hear. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I like to talk to parents about the behaviors that they're, that they're teaching their children to present. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, the behaviors that they're teaching their children not to tell them yeah. because they can't handle the truth. So going back to, you know, what's the repair? I think the repair really is the proof is in the pudding. Okay, dad. So show me that you know how to manage yourself and I will trust you. Hmm. And when, you know, I can see that you can handle my no, then I will feel more free to be able to have open dialogue about the things that you want me to do and how I feel about it. Hmm. And so we can then go into healthy problem solving, which is kind of where that ultimately ended up going, which was that, well, yeah, but dad, I don't like playing the same song over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like the piano, but I don't like the way that this teacher um, programs me between my lessons about what I get to do. I want to talk about that. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. There you go. What are the unmet needs underneath this behavior? Like, you know, if we get stuck at the level of this solution, my solution is you do piano, exactly how the teacher wants you to do it, and that's the only option. But if you dig a little, it's like, oh, well, what's, what's going on? Why is this something you don't want to do? Like, what's, what's really going on for here? And so I, kind of what I hear you saying, Catherine, is that we should step back. Probably dad maybe needed to open himself up a little more vulnerably to say, oh, oh, I really messed up and I'm feeling it and I feel really bad about it. And then say, what, what is really going on for you? Like, what, why is this? You know, what's, what's underneath this, this yeah. sort of level of solutions that we're butting heads at? Right. And recognizing that all overreactions are goal-oriented. And so when any of us are in overreaction, we're doing that to get what we want. So it's all about how can I create an atmosphere through my explosiveness that will get the other person to do what I want them to do. Oh, definitely. I see that in myself. Like when I'm overreacting, I'm like, I want you to do what I want you to do right now. And I can't handle anything but that. And so when parents find themselves in that, because we're human, right? Like we're, 
we're imperfect and we're we're vulnerable and all that. So when we find ourselves in this place of overreaction, what do you what do you what should we do? What should we do in those moments when we're like, oh, like I'm so frustrated, right? We have to take care of that stress response. But tell 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 us a little bit more about like what is this over what kind of what kind of bell of mindfulness should that overreaction um, ring for us? So what I like to um, support all of us with when we're in an overreaction is recognizing that our overreactions stimulate our need to prove. And needing to prove is proof of doubt. (laughs) So whenever we're trying to prove something, if there's at least a little bit of consciousness around the dynamic that we are able to reflect oh, wow, I am totally trying to prove I'm right here. Needing to prove is proof of doubt. So something in me is doubting that I'm right. Because if I really knew that I was okay with my sense of things, I wouldn't be in proving. So the minute I'm in proving is my, my like alarm that goes off around what's happening. So I can have an opportunity to go, oh, wow, this actually has nothing to do with what is the surface issue. This is actually something in me has been activated. So all overreactions, although there's the trigger, whatever the moment in this very moment is activating, the underlying situation that's being catalyzed is something that pre-existed and it's older material. It's mm-hmm. actually, I look at those people in our world that trigger us are actually the you know, the healers on uh, the healers for our own internal pain and wounds. They come along often in the form of our children because our children are so good at activating these pre-existing wounds. So that's my chance to step back and recognize, oh my gosh, I'm needing to prove something. And I'm also recognizing I'm in the midst of my own healing crisis right now. So rather than focus on this external thing, I'm going to step back and say, this has nothing to do with you and be able to stop myself in my overreaction, turn to the person that I'm toxically vomiting all over and turn to them and be able to say, wow, I am so sorry. I recognize this has nothing to do with you and I'm going to take myself away and I'm going to see what I can do about supporting my own healing and, and pull myself off this, you know, present approach and attack of the other person and take myself out of the room until I'm able to address my underlying woundedness. Because all of, all of our triggers are those pre-existing deeper places within us that are actually being agitated and irritated. And, and that's, so then when you begin to look at the protagonist in the story, from the perspective of, oh my goodness, you've just helped me go directly to that place within me that needs the most love. Can I turn toward that within myself and be with it in a way in which it needs my company? Can I be present to myself? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work to do in those moments. And it's a wonderful call to action to say to step back and to stop and to remove yourself. I'm so sorry. I'm, the, the, I realize this has nothing to do with you. I've got to go take care of myself. I've got some stuff, I, some feelings I've got to take care of with myself. And that may be impossible in the moment if you have to like keep little ones safe or whatever, but take a moment and take, the re, take that recognition, maybe write down that moment, what was happening. Well, and also recognize triggering. that the little ones are not safe when you're in that Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's nothing safe about it. In fact, it's the most unsafe place for them to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that permission to remove yourself is really important. At one point, I remember my daughter was a toddler still in a crib and I remember getting very triggered and I put her in her crib. I walked out of her room and I closed her door. I walked into my room. I went out onto my balcony and I closed my door and she was crying. She wasn't happy, but that it was much better, much safer for me to just take myself outside and have that fresh air in that moment and give myself permission to do that and leave my unhappy child for a moment than to, than to 
like you say, vomit my toxic, <laughs> toxic trigger stuff all over her. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we think that, um, you know, I, I, I mean, we all know when we're triggered, it's hard for us to do the work. It's always better for us to use a preventative approach in general to life yes. and, you know, to get upstream. So upstream initiatives is, you know, obviously I think where all of us go is, gosh, you know, am I doing all the things, all the practices? Am I doing my meditation? Am I doing the work that I get to do around my own self-healing so that I come into my relationships with my children and other people in my world more conscious, more regulated, with my, you know, bandwidth as, as, as strong as it can possibly be for disruptions, for behaviors that are less than perfect, for the space to be the space for all of the ways in which um, people show up in ways that I, I wish they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Can I do that and cultivate that within myself? So that, that's the best thing we can do, right? Is the upstream. Are there problems that I know downstream are gonna happen every single day? And are there places in my life where I can solve those downstream problems at different times other than in the problem zone? Yes. Yeah, preventative. And yeah, and not in, in that no problem zone. So what do you say then to the listener who's listening to this and saying, ah, but I get so triggered when my, my five-year-old hits my two-and-a-half-year-old and it makes me crazy. And so what, let's, let's take that, that information and bring it down to a real concrete example. Yeah, great. So if you have a five-year-old hitting a two-year-old, and that I'm going to guess it probably isn't like it's a one-off, it's probably some kind of repetitive pattern, then I would say, again, it's information. It's information. So if we take it out of the good, bad, right, wrong, it's information, and it's also something we're not okay with. It's in the, yeah, but I'm not okay with it. It's information, and I'm not okay with it. I want to really address the behavior. I would say, yeah, it's not okay with me too. It's definitely one of those safety issues. And uh, human behavior is complicated. So if we look at it as information about the state of mind of the five-year-old, then I would wonder, wonder what's going on for my little five-year-old, that this is coming from them. And I would want to spend some time, not in the you know, conflict resolution is a fascinating thing and how we address and influence other people's behavior is, is you know, it's, it's where I spend my life. What I know about changing other people is that we can't do it. They can change themselves. It's the only possibility. And we as adults can create the conditions under which change happens. So, you know, my, my world is focusing on the ecosystems within families and the environments that we create for change to occur. So primarily with that in mind, and I see a behavior that to me, when I look at it, I go, gosh, this hit, this is coming from someplace inside of this little one. I'm wondering, and I'm curious about where that's coming from. So, and I know it's going to happen because it happens all the time. Again, this is where I want to talk about it when it's not happening. Because you can't teach people to swim when they're drowning. So what, when I want to teach my swimming lessons, I don't pick the time when someone's drowning. I pick another time. And I sit down with my five-year-old and I say, you know, I've noticed that you really get frustrated with your little brother or sister. And that when you're super frustrated, you end up hitting them. Yeah, I get so mad. And, you know, they grab my things or you never spend any time with me or you love them more. I mean, I don't know what the story is going to be, but I know there's going to be one. And for each and every five-year-old, it's going to be a different story. It's either going to be you love them more than me, or you spend more time with them than me, or they always take my things and you don't do anything about it and it's unjust. Underneath is always an unmet need. Is it the need for connection, the need for love? Is it the need for, I don't know, because I have to really sit and be with them and create the atmosphere for them to come and be forthcoming so that we can connect with whatever sort of um, conversations and healing balms will support the transformation. It comes from within. So people who use the behavioralist approach are going to do something to the child. They're going to do a reward or a punishment or a timeout or a this or a that or another thing. 
just like we do with restorative versus retributive justice. And what we know is that very rarely do people change because of something you do to them. They may change the behavior because they're afraid of you, but they won't change their behavior for the reasons that you want them to, out of consideration for the other person, or out of having the skill to be able to advocate for their unmet needs, or having have, you know, the capacity to be able to speak about their feelings and tie it back to the needs of theirs that aren't being met. These are things we teach people to be able to do. And so rather than get mad at someone for not having skills, we teach them the skills. So when we're looking at family conflicts, kind of the general way that we're resolving family conflicts, whether it be between siblings or an adult and child is mom or dad is the judge and jury and they push down the solution onto the child. And that, but very rarely do people change their behavior because of what you do to them. <laughs> and they find it frustrating. <laughs> but you do activate retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. Exactly. And you do get the resentment flows flowing. Yes. And as a result of how poorly you handled that initial problem, you created three more problems. Yes. And then you've spent all your time dealing with the resentment flows that were activated by the way that you dealt with the initial issue. So what is a better mindset for us to be approaching family conflicts with? How, how, can we, how can we change the way we approach these for a healthier, healthier dynamic? Yeah, so going back to the beginning of our conversation, if we look at everything as an observer, I'm the observer, and I'm having the capacity to observe rather than evaluate. So if I'm an observer, I'm not saying this is good and this is bad. I'm simply saying, wow, you know, when you grab the toy from your sister, yes. rather than when you were such a bad boy. Yeah. So it's changing my framework. It's changing my language. When we shift the way we see behavior as the good, bad, right, wrong, and we see it as the manifestation of unmet needs. And I like to say the tragic expression of unmet needs. So if it's a tragic expression of an unmet need, we then get curious about the underlying needs that are not being met. And with that curiosity, we lean in and listen rather than start some monologue, uh, a moralizing, preaching, advising sort of monologue. Basically, all of the things that we do now get in the way of actually supporting people in regulating their nervous system. And when people are triggered and they're dysregulated, they're so stuck in the amygdala and the fight flight response that there's no space for them to be able to respond differently. And we can break it down, we can deconstruct the mind. And we know by deconstructing the mind, we recognize that people are actually responding to their own narrative and the way that they're describing things. Back to, you know, again, the negative view of children. If we have a narrative that's a negative view of children and that's what we're responding to, we end up winding ourselves up because we're not even seeing things clearly. We're simply seeing them through our mindset, our filter in consciousness. So awareness is pretty much most of the trick. The awareness around, oh, wow, I've fallen into that pattern again. The awareness around, oh, wow, I'm noticing that I'm proving. Oh, wow, you know, that must mean I'm trying to prove a lie within myself because I myself doubt it. I mean, it's all... It's all the work, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I can imagine the, and I agree with you in, in a bazillion ways in that that mindfulness is the key. Like as we start to train the mind to understand, as we start to be able to see things, as we start to be able to see our judgments, we start to see our stories, we start to be aware of these views and we start to see these, these needs. No, but I can imagine the listener saying, you know, okay, like I'm look, I'm trying to look at my child's behavior. This like what I have been seeing is bad behavior is like maybe unhealthy, maybe un, uh, you know, antisocial or whatever, like behavior with their siblings or with me or yelling and uh, impoliteness or whatever it is. I'm trying to see these behaviors unmet needs, but 
how, but we also want to look at like, what are the parents' needs, right? Like, what are your own needs? I mean, I can imagine the listener saying like, am I just supposed to meet all of my child's needs? What, you know, what about everybody else in the family? So um, as we think about sort of conflicts like that, um, what, how would you respond, I suppose, to that? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, if we go back to a moment of reflecting, what is your approach? Is it retributive or restorative? Is it teaching skills or is it making people pay for their past misdeeds? If it's punishments and rewards, there's a goal. The goal behind punishments and rewards is different than the goal um, to the guidance approach, which is the program that I run. So I teach a guidance approach to parenting and a guidance approach to parenting is about teaching skills. And it's also about teaching skills to get to a different goal. The goal of a guidance approach is teaching consideration of yourself and others' needs. The goal of a behavioralist or a controlling form of discipline is to teach children to be obedient and compliant and to do as they're told. So if you are looking at what you're using as your modality without having an awareness of what your goal is, that place within you that you're actually coming from by using that modality. What I found over the years, and I've been doing this for a long time, is that parents are using a behavioralist approach, but they actually are hoping for the goals of a guidance approach. Not recognizing that a behavioralist can never achieve the goals of consideration. They're, They're not possible. Because when you focus on obedience and compliance, you're focusing the mind of the child on what they're gonna get or what's gonna happen to them Mm -hmm. versus when you're using a guidance approach, you're not focusing on the the mind of the child on what they're going to get or what's going to happen. You're supporting them in beginning to understand other people's experience of their behavior and the needs of yours that aren't being met when this behavior is their solution to meeting their needs. So, So it's a complete shift by creating a different atmosphere by using a different modality. So parents have been taught through their own life experience, and as you mentioned, it's everywhere. It's in our school systems. It's everywhere that it's about what you do to people. It's about the reward or the punishment. It's what you do to people that gets them to shift their behavior. And we can say, sure, you know, we have lots of evidence that when you do certain things to people, you get a shift. But again, we're back to why are you getting the shift? Is it because they're considerate of your needs and they've understood your perspective? because they've deeply begun to embody consideration and shift on the behalf of that understanding? Or are you getting the shift because they're afraid of you? And because you do, as we all know, there's naturally a power differential between an adult and a child that is then being exercised by the parent to use control because they have got power over the other to get them to change on the basis of what I can do to you. Yeah. I can completely limit your ask, access to the things that you enjoy. Bye and bye therefore, iPad. I can manipulate you. Bye-bye. Yeah, <laughs> iPad, dates with friends, mm-hmm. um, you know, coveted uh, uh, desserts, all the things that are expressions of you know, that person's joy in life can be taken away. And so if I do that and I threaten you and I use that as the cornerstone of my parenting, then basically the cornerstone of parenting is I make you dependent on me and afraid of me. And then there's resentment that flows. And then you create the three R's. For years and years and years. And the the thing is that ultimately we lose that control, right? We do. The more we use power, the less influence we have. And we're we're all going to lose that control as our kids become more independent as a, you know, I have a 13 year old as a, you know, as a 13 year old, she's got her, she's got her own phone, you know, soon she will be, she'll be driving. She'll be able to take herself to places. She'll be able to do lots of different things. If I'm using, if I've been using power and using control over these things, all the way up until now, then when I lose that, when I, when she suddenly is much more independent, then there, all that's left is the resentment. There's none of that connection that I see you. I see what your needs are. These are my needs. There's none of that there. So if we're using 
we, you know, we get in this mode of, I think you're absolutely right that like parents want to have their kids behave and cooperate because of consideration for others. But the methods we use are these authoritarian methods because that's just what's in the soup of our culture and that's how we were raised. And then we're kind of surprised that 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 our kids aren't considerate of our needs. Um, but yeah, I would be resentful of you too if you took away my iPad, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, so so we know those we know those um those goals are unexamined. Yes. And it really is then a shifting away from, I don't know, I mean, I, I bet you find this too, is that it doesn't take very long for the parent community that I work with to go, oh gosh, that's not what I wanted. I did want a shift in behavior, but not because they're afraid of me. Yes. I mean, I've taught thousands of people, rarely have I ever found anybody who's like, I don't care what the reason is, I just want the change. Actually, people are more complicated. They want the change and they also want it to come from a place within that is the right place. So then it's the work of actually creating a whole different ecosystem. And you know that's the longer road. Yeah. The road to, and I, I like to use the example of, you know maybe you play tennis and you've had the experience of what it's like to learn a new skill. Just because you have a coach who teaches you how to hit topspin or tells you how to serve a ball doesn't mean that you can go out on the court and do it. You have to go out and practice. Mm -hmm. You have to throw that ball up and you have to come down on it and you have to keep hitting that ball across and over and over and over again. And that is how we learn a way to create an atmosphere and show up so that we can solve conflicts in ways that don't generate the three R's. How we can be with our kids around just everything in life in ways that are different than the way that we had been using a controlling form of discipline. It's just truly like going out on the tennis court every single day. And it helps to have a coach. It helps to have someone. It also helps to have a community. So what we need is we need to create the space for transformation and have the self-acceptance to not be great at it and to be okay with ourselves as we are transforming the way we approach conflict. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you and I are in very similar positions and it is along the road. It's like a much, it takes a lot more time. It takes a lot more diligence. And I was going to ask you, how do you help people through that messy middle where the kids are still like uh, the way I describe it is like they've been like a train going 90 miles an hour of resistance to everything you've been saying, right? Because it's been this controlling form and they, this is the retaliation, rebellion and resentment, right? So they, they've been resisting everything. And then as you start to shift, as you start to change, as you start to move, how do, how do you help people through that messy middle part where it takes some time to like slow that train down, stop the train, and even turn it around completely in the other direction? You know, I mean, I like to work with the whole family and I actually, I was just on the, I had a call this morning with a client, a 21 year old client, and um, I'm working with his parents and his brother and the whole group. And he's the one that's so aware. He's aware of the whole thing. And he's just so frustrated that his parents are taking so long to learn the skills huh, yeah. and that they just don't listen. He says to me, they just don't listen. And I'm like, I know. They're not listening, they're doing the roadblocks, they're advising, they're lecturing, they're moralizing, they're preaching, they're diagnosing, they're questioning, they're doing everything but listen. Mm -hmm. They just can't hold the space and be with you and be present to you. Instead, they co-opt and they want to get into controlling through all of these different approaches. And you know, it's well documented that anything but actively listening is not going to support the other person. Marshall Rosenberg, who was one of my teachers, Marshall used to say, um, before you start advising someone, have them write down on a piece of paper, sign their name and get it notarized that they want your advice. Because <laughs> he says, I can tell you, there, it is almost, it's so uncommon that someone is actually asking for your advice and don't insult them that they're so stupid that they don't know what's right for them. 
all they wanted was a sounding board. Be there, stand there, hold the space. But dear God, don't think that they need you to figure out how to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's just downright insulting. Oh my God. I have, I have a friend who goes into some advice uh, often in conversations and it's so frustrating. It's so that irritating. Like, irritates the yeah. Out of me. Yeah. It really does. It, it's so irritating. And we might think that our children are stupid and they need our advice. They really aren't. Mm-hmm. Even young children can be empowered and have the solutions come from within. So, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about motivation in my course and motivation is a huge subject with regard to, you know, most parents want their kids to be intrinsically motivated. They want them to be self-starters. They want them to have it coming from within. And yet everything they do is about an external locus of causality. Everything they do is about controlling people from outside. Everything they're doing is creating a world in which it's about what other people think of you. So, you know, we don't have time to go into socially prescribed versus self-referenced, but when we look at, you know, this idea of, of creating a world in which children are looking everywhere about, you know, am I doing it the way other people want me to do it? Am I meeting other people's expectations of me? You know, is so-and-so proud of me? Is so-and-so happy with me? I mean, oh my goodness gracious, are they happy with themselves? Are they measuring themselves against, you know, wow, I put a lot of effort in, I feel so much better about my own. Um, depth of understanding that makes me feel really good about it. That's the motivation that we want kids to have from within that sense of deep satisfaction of mastery, but not is mom happy with me or dad happy with me? Is my teacher happy with me? No, I'm happy with me. I feel great when I apply myself. That's what motivates me is from within. Yeah. And that care and that connection for the other. I, I could probably talk to you about all of these things for a long time, Catherine, because I'm sure we could go on for hours. We could keep going yeah, on and we on. We could go forever and ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm, I really want to just appreciate, you know, what you've said, talking, talking about bad behavior, talking about the language that you use about kids, um, thinking about how we very rarely do people change because of what we do, um, and inviting us, inviting the listener to think about like, are your goals unexamined? Like really, what are your goals? And, you know, can you get that, the, the support you need to create a new ecosystem, to learn a new language, to, 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 to get that top spin on your tennis? <laughs> That's um, it's so beautiful. Do you have any final uh, thoughts or words for the listener who's like, I'm trying to imagine now maybe the listener, maybe this is their, her first episode and this is like new stuff to her. And, and, and you've just been like blown over by, wait a second, I've got to re-examine some things. What are some, maybe some thoughts for that person? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, seems like an overwhelming journey. And uh, I guess what I would like to say is that this is, this is a life journey. And your children have given you the most beautiful opportunity to be able to get triggered and start the work of your internal world and creating new ecosystems around just parenting and home and safety and psychological safety and discovery and conflict resolution. And these are, these are great, you know, great ways for us to spend our lives in terms of self-inquiry and mastery and love and being present. So, you know, I I would hope that everybody could give themselves the compassion that they need so that they can give it to their children. It's that whole idea of putting the oxygen mask on yourself first so that you can give it to your kids. See your children beautiful. I always like to say, if you can see your children beautiful when they're melting down and saying the things that are hard for you to hear, I'd like, you know, in my courses I say, Children need our compassion the most when they appear to deserve it the least. Yes. Catherine, thank you so very much. Um, Please give us your preferred website for people to reach out and find out more about what you do. Yeah. So ConsciousParentingRevolution.com is my website. And, um, you know, I have a newsletter. I post blogs every week. There's a ton of content there. I have a free ebook. And, um, and I do these 90-day parenting reset programs, which sound very similar, but 
there might be different material. One never knows. I love to train with so many people. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a good resource. I have some TED Talks out there as well on parenting. So Catherine Winter Celery on TED Talk. And, uh, and all of it is, you know, it's right there at your fingertips. Thank you so much for the work you do. I really enjoyed your TED Talks. I think they're great. You're a fabulous speaker. And I just really appreciate another person in this on this journey of saying, like, this is a revolution. I think the word revolution is great because this is a revolution. It's a huge change in the way we are looking at things. It's an evolution. And it's it's saying, oh, you know, yes, maybe the things that the way that we learned things, there are maybe some things we want to keep, but a lot of things aren't so great. And we can start to turn it around. We can start to make a change. We can change these generational patterns. So I want to thank you for doing that work, for sharing it with us, for enlightening us and being a voice um, to, to be part of that change. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, obviously you're a revolutionary as well. So it's great to be on the path. And I'm imagining your your community are also all revolutionaries. So, you know, we're all in the midst of transformation. Thank you so much for listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. Seriously, thank you for listening. Sora is helping me here with my intro and outro today. I love what Catherine had to say, and I really think that's true, that what happens in the micro level of our families, you know, it's really part of what is happening in the macro level. And so we can start to change minds and be part of this evolution of parenting. So I hope you'll join me in that. I'd love to hear your ahas from this episode and your takeaways. You can take a screenshot of wherever you're listening and then just share that screenshot and tag me in that. I'm at Mindful Mama Mentor on Instagram and I'm at Facebook. And yeah, so let me know. And if you're enjoying the the episode, the podcast, please, of course, subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends and all those good things. Let them know that what they can learn from this episode so that we can spread the healing, good knowledge that, you know, we're all developing a real time here together to help us grow and evolve and do better for one another as human beings, which is so cool. Isn't that so cool, honey? Sure. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad to have been able to connect with you. I hope that you have some peace some relaxation, some fun, maybe a little mini dance party or something this week that brings you some joy. And I will be back in your ears next week on Tuesday. So I'll talk to you then. Thank you so much. Namaste. Bye. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting Membership. 
you'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside mindfulparentingcourse.com. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.